When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. For the final time this year and indeed this decade, I am here with prominent foodie Thea Lenarducci. Thea, hello. Hello, that sounds very serious, isn't oh, it? For the God. last time this decade. Oh, oh, I thought you were criticising the prominent foodie. Oh no, time. I'm fine yeah, with that. Yeah, exactly. This last year, I mean, this. you're setting me up for failure, but yeah. No. Uh, <laughs> this week I sent you a picture of my pasta pesto. You did. Thanks for that. Well, um, your response was, does it have pineapple in it? Yeah, it looked a bit sweaty also. How can it be sweaty? I just, it's just pasta. <laughs> um, look, we've talked about this before. My Christmas dinner at home is everyone in my house picks their favourite food for Christmas dinner. So my daughter's going to have a toasty. A toasty. Yeah, that's what she wants at the minute. <laughs> I think my son might have pizza. I'm going to have pasta. And then we'll see where we get to with everyone else. I was interested. You're not going to do this tradition. I'm aware of that. But if you did... What would your Christmas dinner of favourite food be? Any food. Any food. That's, um, that can't be your answer, by the way. You have to specify. <laughs> any food. Any yeah, food yeah. would do. I just like food. Famously not picky. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I will say my grandmother's gnocchi because ah. you can't buy those. And What sauce would you have? Well, her sauce. So oh. her, her gnocchi made with her sauce and her sauce is a ragu of... Uh, it's It's pork and beef mince and it's very very fine and she cooks it for absolutely ages ages on the oldest stove i've uh, ever seen in my life so actually your and my christmas dinners wouldn't wouldn't i'd, I'd like that for my christmas dinner can she no? it can't happen although that said she did once there was an easter when i couldn't make it over and um so she gave my sister to bring back to me a little in a cart door case you know old ice cream box some gnocchi that she'd made and she just put a bit of oil on them to keep them separated and a separate jar of her ragu which miraculously made it through Italian security at the airport because they said oh oh what's this liquid and my sister just said oh it's it's my nonna's ragu and they were like oh in that case in that case on you go (laughs) my mum sends me every Christmas sausage meat and celery stuffing which I used to have at Christmas dinner when I had to have Christmas dinner and I really liked it so when she comes to visit just before Christmas, she brings a frozen, like, Block. box. Yeah, no, box. They're in bowl, balls oh, of right. sausage meat and celery stuffing. And so will you have them with your Christmas dinner? No, I'll just eat them. Or just a snack. Well, yeah, I'll have them in a sandwich. <laughs> I'll have them in a cob. Oh, cob. We- you would say yeah, cob, wouldn't exactly, you? exactly. Exactly. What would you say? Uh, probably a bap. A bap. Not that yeah. it's good. <laughs> Uh, lovely well that's food done if you're not a subscriber to the TLS here's how to become one use this special offer code and get on board the-tls.co.uk forward slash podcast offer you can get five issues for five pounds or dollars get it for yourself and your friends this Christmas I should also remind you that you can buy TLS merch at our new shop just go to our website and follow the link and that includes two books we have published this year Genius and Ink by Virginia Woolf and The Hero by Lee Child I saw this week that The Hero was the best selling ebook in the whole country hooray i know i know so much commercialism but that is what christmas is after all about this week we're going to be reviewing the whole decade with a crew of tls editors did we ever agree on our collective noun for tls editors i wonder a shush a wag anyway in the paper we have a special 12 page retrospective touching on issues from academia to gender the novel film and more so we'll talk all about that
First problem of this decade, and there have been, let's face it, many of them, is what to call it. The tens, the twenty tens, both feel already sub-iconic, as if this was a period that struggled to be definitive, to be something worth packaging up and theorising over. David Horsepool, who we shall meet shortly, said this in his own roundup of a decade of history writing: "We are still post 9/11, mid climate catastrophe, in medias res digitalia, and pre AI. I know it exists, but it feels like very early days." Politics had its big lurch around the middle of the decade, consequent on the great financial faceplant of 2008, and is still reeling now, having not wobbled into any sort of stable equilibrium. That is true, but it's not going to stop us having a go at drawing some lessons if we can. We'll use the various submissions of TLS contributors as our guide, including Mary Beard on academia, B.J. Silcox on fiction, John Stokes on theatre, Zoe Williams on gender, and much more. To do that, here in the studio is a veritable shush of TLS editors: Rosdenine, Minister of Fun, the aforementioned Horsepool and iconic Northerner Lucy Dallas, and we've got champagne. Yay! Where yeah. is it? Okay. That was a bit belated, wasn't it? Yeah. Can I object to a shush? Uh, oh yeah. Okay. A what? murder. Uh, give me another. No, not a murder. A something. Sigh. Something stylish. A, sigh, a grumble. Uh, what did you? What was the other one? No, I don't want to be a, a panache. A panache. A panache. That's yeah. good. That's I what think, I'd like. Does I that mean shandy? That, does please? that mean shandy? Well, it panache. does. It, yeah, I mean, sort of, but it mm. also means like you know. Mm. Uh, what was I going to say? A, a wag. Fizz. Wag sounds better. A I, wag? I thought we settled on a sigh of editors. Very but nice that's, time, but that's yeah. very depressing. Yeah. Quite accurate. It sounds awful. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, it's, it's funny because it's true. Yeah. <laughs> we all have a sigh. Right, I'm going to open some champagne while we're talking uh, because we've done this great um, review of the decade. So let's talk about what we think of it. Is the only lesson or the main lesson to draw from this, that this is the decade or has been the decade of identity politics? Do we accept that from reading this or otherwise? Is Isn't identity it? politics oh, a neutral term? Yeah. Oh, good question. I think it is. Because I think to me it's which makes clear that identity issues, issues of who you are rather than what you do, is more important. And that can be a good thing because you might say that identity has been overlooked because there's been a whole rush towards just assuming that a certain group of people should always be in power. So being conscious of identity politics isn't necessarily a bad thing. Or you could conclude that it, it slightly occludes uh, looking at the actual deeds rather than the people doing them, so it's a bad thing. But I think the term in itself is well, neutral. I'm I just would say that on. two of our contributors who've taken on those subjects in this roundup are Mary Beard yep. and Zoe Williams. And I wonder if you said to them, this has been the decade of identity politics, if, if they would not say well yes but and the reason they would possibly uh, disagree with you is because identity politics is usually meant uh, negatively is it a bit like political correctness originally that's not how it was meant but it has actually become a at least slightly loaded and slightly derogatory term for something which you can argue very strongly is an unalloyed good um, Maybe well, not unalloyed, but good. Yeah, has it a turned good. out to be an unalloyed good? Well, and nothing's an unalloyed good, is it? Apart from puppies, maybe. No, they're, they're, Even they're, then. Yeah, they're exactly. lovely. Yeah. No, they're coming. <laughs> Should we just talk about dogs? Yeah. I'm going to try and open some champagne, which may be an, an unalloyed good as well. Um, Go on, Ross. One of the points that Zoe makes in her piece is that lots of the identity politics issues and things like LB... GTQ rights have all been weaponized. Whoa! Listeners, Stokers made a terrible understanding of all of the expensive electrical equipment. It did not go on the electrical equipment. The producers disappeared. Yeah, there's producers in a horror. I don't think we're allowed to bring drinking here, are we? No. We have now. It's a good job you didn't open any champagne in this studio. That was good, though. That was a good sound effect. Also, the timing of that. What were you saying, Ros? I felt that I sort of punctuated. Weaponized. Yeah. This is this is a bit of a cliche though, because in every radio show and podcast at this time of year, everyone goes, "Oh, we're not meant to bring champagne in here." Do oh, they? Oh, all right. You're you the pod. Know. You're the podcast expert, Ros. We're going to get to the. We're going to get Sorry. to podcasting uh, in a, in a minute. In fact, oh, hang on. David, is that a handkerchief? Yes. David Horsepool. Of, of course, of course. As a gentleman and a scholar, you have a handkerchief. 
I do. Um, and uses it to mop up champagne. Right. That's <laughs> what it's for, I think. I don't think I did that in any particularly bad way. It was obviously just a... Ch- I think you- Elle shook it. Very nice. Shaking shaking it. Like Lewis yeah. Hamilton Elle, my assistant, who's leaving me, her parting gift was to shake up some, some champagne. Yeah. Sorry, yes, Zoe, arg- Zoe argues that a lot of the issues have been taken up by people who don't really care about them and used and weaponized and used against the people who do believe in them to split us all up from each other and there's some argument the argument perhaps most most obvious where that's the case where people who perhaps aren't concerned about feminism are concerned about burkas so people who who would not live their lives constantly worried about women's rights all of a sudden grow a conscience about women's rights when it comes to muslim women in burkas and and therefore the zoe williams argument would be that's weaponized by uh, weaponizing one group against another Mm. Uh, but is it true of the arts, I suppose? Well, let me talk about academia. Mary talks about academia where she says, effectively, we all think it's a place of snowflakes and people wondering about identity. And she kind of implies it is a bit, but not as much as we, we think. Well, she also says that... Um, that Who else wants champagne, by the way? Plenty of, has everyone got some? Lucy. Plenty of issues happening... That, that, that there were politici- that, uh, politicians... That there were students talking about things in her day... Yeah. And they had their own issues. It's just that it wasn't cold identity politics. That was a particular movement in favour of X or Y or Z. I don't. Maybe it was civil rights, or maybe it was women's rights, or you know. But it wasn't cold identity politics. It was just students asking. Well, for without wishing to be indelicate about it, we've all been to university at slightly different times. <laughs> oh, <what> unbelievable. <laughs> uh, do we remember that? I don't really remember much identity politics. My... <laughs> just full stop. Well, no, I just don't remember it being very political. It may have just been me, though. I don't know whether it was a not not a political time. I was at university I... just as Blair was two years, a year in. So maybe there wasn't much politics about then. Was that the end of his? Was, was that the end of history type period? Wasn't it? Was it? A little bit, wasn't it? I mean, I think when I many years before that was at university, the very big thing, two big things that happened politically were Nelson Mandela being freed and the end of Margaret Thatcher's premiership. So it seemed a fairly... Yeah, it was just, yeah, the poll tax. So that was another kind of victory for um, the march of kind of liberals. So I suppose it seemed to sort of bien pensant university goers as if we were in the ascendancy, things were going right for us. We got rid of Thatch, we got Mandela out, you know, these... That's what students were meant to do. They were supposed to end apartheid. Did that? Yeah, well uh, done. Got rid of Mrs. Thatcher. Well done. Yeah. All just by End not turning up. But to we were all in together in that respect. That wasn't groups. There weren't many people who kind of. I mean, I did. You always meet weirdos, but I mean, there weren't many people who objected to Nelson no, Mandela so coming out of prison. So it wasn't a question of. I mean, the snowflakery charge is a slightly different one, isn't it? It's not necessarily just that the politics are more based on not beliefs like ending apartheid or, or opposing Thatcherism, which are effectively ideological beliefs, it's more a suggestion that it's based on um, on, on groups being pitted against each other. That, does that seem to be a new new one? Or, or, or an intolerance of even discussing things? Maybe it's... it's that's the, the snowflake, that's the charge, yeah. isn't it? The snowflake charge is that, is that people can't stand um, things being talked about. But what Mary says is that there's a lot of talk, it's partly what Zoe Williams says as well, that, that people, in order to weaponise it, people pull out very extreme examples of mm. things. So maybe this has happened twice or, you know, I don't know, a handful of times across the country. And what happens is that uh, these same examples get pulled out again and again. Oh, somebody was cancelled and asked not to speak. And in fact, in the vast, vast majority of cases, people do speak, people do have discussions. And it's the same people who don't get asked as it were you know and they're usually on some kind of tour and um they are able to publicize that rejection far more easily these days i thought mary made a really good point which is that it's now seen if you're teaching classics you have to give trigger warnings because you're going to be talking about rape and then that's seen as 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 basically students not being able to willing to face reality because they're too fragile to handle it and mary's point which i think is really interesting was we're only confronting the genuine issue of rape existing in class Mm. tech classic text for the first time now when she was learning it was sort of euphemized and talked about just as the ravishings and just things that existed and so who knows how people would have reacted 30 or 40 years ago if it was being taught in the same way yeah. that it is now i think that's that absolutely sense. true I mean, when i yeah. learned about the the event called the rape of the sabine women it was kind of explained that it didn't really mean what you think it, yeah what rape it meant taking the women away and then it wasn't kind of 
spelt out, well, what do you think happened to the women once they've been taken away kind yeah. of idea, whereas mm. now, yes, I mean, they're facing exactly the same reality that, in fact, those classical authors were writing about fairly plainly. And, and as she says about the rape of Lucretia as well, yeah. which is, it, it is absolutely seen in terms of what it did to the Roman Empire. That's that's how you talk about it. Yeah, yeah. That's how it was always taught. But maybe the, maybe this is where the, the conflation with identity politics comes in, which is that it's clearly there's no problem when you're confronting difficult issues of things like rape. It's not snowflakery. It's not when you're dealing with them, you should deal with them sensitively and appropriately and take into a con- this consideration the individual context of people. That feels like a a fairly straightforward argument. The difficulty is perhaps where it's not about that, it's about people who have different political opinions, different worldviews, where that's not about troubling details, that's about not wishing to hear an opposing argument, not wishing to to, to ever think that you might be wrong about something, which is a broader societal problem that, 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 that has grown up outside of universities as well. And that must be the experience of Western universities, that there are just more people from different bra- backgrounds social, political, religious and so on who are there and whose voices are going to be heard and they may make it difficult for people who always talk the same way to hear them. But, you know, Mary, who's writing in, you know, to, about the end of a long and distinguished... 45 um, years, she says, yeah. Uh, classical, I mean, she doesn't call it long and distinguished. I think I could call it. I mean, she's obviously able to, you know, you are able to move with the times if you want to and, and not just be trying to catch up and to to bring people along with you. So I think, you know, there are obviously ways for people who are in academia to to respond to it without just caricaturing it. Yeah, although I I don't think... I think Mary probably would concede the point there is still intolerance in in all ends of this, though. I I think the snowflakery charge isn't completely dismissed, even by Mary's point. No, but but the snowflakery charge is, unlike an actual snowflake, the only one that sticks... Because since when were incels famous for listening to other people? Since when was Steve Bannon good at allowing other people's points of view? If you look at the other extreme, they're not famous for listening and for dialogue. No. But the snowflake thing is the thing that's stuck, that everyone is, you know, oh, you're too liberal and wishy-washy and right on. But it never seems to get applied to, but we may to the have, other But end. we may have had an election in this country where the piety of the left has been seen to be unpopular. You know, this was a Labour vote that declined by 9%. And where there is a cont- I'm not saying I believe that there is a contention, at least, that the people who were running the Labour campaign were saying things that were not of interest to the people who should be voting Labour. And because they were interested in, in areas which are of less importance to people elsewhere in the country. That's the contention made against Labour. What do you mean by, by talking about... This is the identity politics argument. The identity politics has become more of a pressing issue for some people than others. It's the sort of the split, yeah. in, the split in the country. I think that's hard really to sustain. I mean, we'll, we'll have a piece... No, we have a piece saying, yeah. actually, not in this feature, but in this issue, saying that it's more down to personal appeal or lack of it Yeah. at the end of the day. And I'm sure that has a lot to do with it too. Do we feel there's a certain amount of people just grouching and saying, you know, this is the world we live in, it's full of these things that I just don't, I don't wish to accept? Maybe that's what the charge will always go up like that. Well, quite probably. And in the meantime, as Mary points out, it's a, a big distraction, a distraction from other things that are happening inside the universities. Discontent and underfunding by the erosion of a proper career structure for many young academics, by needless attacks on the established pension scheme and by conflicts over what students should pay for uh, their education, when and how. And we're coming to, we're in a period now where there are mass strikes across universities in, in the UK for precisely those reasons, the pension scheme in particular. And it just sort of sends us into the next decade in a really precarious way where we really have to ask, yeah. what do we value? in our education system. Yeah, and, and how much you're willing to pay for it. Exactly. Um, Lucy. Yes, hello. John Stokes, mm-hmm. who writes about theatre for us. Yeah. This is still in the area, if we're using identity politics neutrally, or at least in the area of identity maybe, that's a more neutral way of putting it, take the politics out of it. Mm. He writes about, this is a decade in which blind casting became entrenched and he himself kind of experienced a greater understanding of the complexity of it. What does he say and do you do you... Should we agree with him, do you think? Well, should. I don't know about should. Uh, I would also slightly uh, quibble with entrenched. Every question you put to me, I'm going to ask it. Fine. <laughs> Is that really? That's how, poli- that's how politicians prosper, generally. I'm not sorry. answering the question. I'd like to answer yeah. that question by asking you a question. <laughs> yeah, I would. Uh, entrenched also makes it sound like a bad thing. 
to me. Well, I think it's more that um, established was that was established was merely the, the synonym I was grasping for. Uh, I d- and I d- I, what he's saying is, I think that the that in theatre, of course, there has been a long tradition of of uh, certainly cross casting, gender casting going one way, basically that you had men playing everybody because of the social conditions of the time, and now the gender casting has been changed quite a lot and also uh, they call it blind or sometimes colour blind casting in that it seems to me to be a really basic point in that if you are acting you don't have to look like the person that you are acting indeed sometimes people will be acting they will be being a horse or an apple yeah. and nobody ever says well that's clearly a male apple do you see what i mean i mean my my whole thing about it i just think it's all made up he doesn't quite accept, have to look he like. doesn't quite accept that point entirely does he, he doesn't and i'm stating it very very simplistically yeah. he says there are lots of there are levels of it and one example that he says that he thinks is particularly brilliant he says which is color blind and color alert and you can be both of those things at the same time, he says, is the all-African-American uh, production of the Death Arthur of Miller play, Death, Death of the Salesman, yeah. yeah, which is on in the West End now. So they haven't changed anything. They haven't... And he says... And it's still all-American, still applies yep. to America, perhaps puts a slightly different light on some of it, but it's still about family. It's about the same things. You happen... The people that you're looking at are slightly different. Which is why the argument that blind casting actually doesn't mean blind casting. But it never no. means blind. No, exactly. And but it's a yeah. funny phrase because you it can funny because phrase, you yeah. can blind cast um, an orchestra. You could literally sit with your back turned to the orchestra that and li- now, do you know they it? do that now yeah. because mm. before they did that they didn't employ any women. Yeah. So if you do, so if you blind, you can genuinely blind cast an orchestra. You just you, you don't look at them and you listen and you like like that that and that and there you've got an orchestra and you've had no. You can blind read a CV. That's do, does it make a big difference when they blind cast orchestras? It did. Yeah. They, they. I think most of them do it now because it made a huge difference. Right. Yeah. But you cannot blind cast a play. No. And it's like actors. You know, it matters. What you look like at some level. Well, he, and the point is, Stokes makes it. Uh, it it's uh, almost it impossible like. not to. And yes. what you sound like. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, and what it, you sound uh, like. there's a phrase used which I think is very good physical appearance can provide evidence of identity, and there's no point in pretending that it can't. But he does discuss a play um, which plays with that, a production which plays with that, The Doctor at the Almeida recently, where part of what is going on is that people are um, blind cast, as it were. You know, there are black actors and white actors. But some of them are playing cross-racial roles. And at some point, someone will say, you're saying that to me because I am black. And they're not, or the other way around. At some level, it can seem a bit kind of trite or kind of gamesy. But actually, it's rather brilliant because it forces you to readdress those, all those things because you haven't already made up your mind, oh, well, this is going to be part of the story. Mm. And, that, and that's this notion of it being a conscious artistic decision and there seems to be two things here there's one at the level of art which is it is interesting to have people of different backgrounds playing roles because it makes us look at the play differently yeah. so the Arthur Miller one really good example it makes us look at Death of the Salesman differently because it's about a community that's underrepresented and marginalised marginalised just as the, the, the community that Arthur Miller was writing about was or in a different way yeah. so at the level of art that kind of works and then there's the level of opportunity which is it must be right to try and make yeah. sure there's a proper opportunity but this kind of gets caught in this notion of blind casting which seems to me to be implied that there's it's sort of arbitrary it's sort of un, it's unthinking and it seems to me it's the very opposite of unthinking either at the level of art or at the level of opportunity or both yes and i think that's just a function of the name i mean you could call it something else yeah, and i suppose could, it's worth bringing up the objection that you do that has been heard that there aren't many white othellos you might say okay Blacking up is no longer done, as the kind of Laurence Olivier mm. uh, thing. Okay, so that's, you know, unless you're the Prime Minister of Canada, you don't do that. Um, <laughs> that was unbelievable this year, wasn't it? A memorable it. moment. Yeah. Um, he couldn't name the number of times he blacked couldn't up. Couldn't name the number <laughs> of parties he hadn't. Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. That was so yeah. brand, that, yeah. for him. Or was it? But, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> to return to <laughs> Sorry, Othello, yeah. uh, just uh, there aren't, as far as I know, perhaps perhaps I'm wrong, there aren't, and there really should be in a way, white actors playing Othello. But, you know, one argument about that is, goodness me, there aren't that many parts for black actors why take one one away yeah. which is yeah. the only one that I Shakespeare think if you've wrote had for 500 black years yeah. of exactly. there's basically been only one part exactly in, yeah. however having said that if we're truly blind about it there's absolutely no reason i think not you to know do. if it were if it were all perfectly level and everything had always been 
Yes, uh, exactly equal. And sure, the the, the other the opera is another area which is a bit slower. I mean, in a funny sort of way, it's always done blind casting, and that the people well, didn't yes. look like what they represented, and people used to sort of you know make jokes about it. Opera's had quite a bad history in terms of uh, Othello blacking up for Othello or uh, Madame Butterfly or the other way around that some brilliant black sopranos would only ever get to play Aida, basically, and they kind of wouldn't get anything else. And that's opened up. How optimistic do we feel? Because Alan Jenkins, our poetry editor, is talking about poetry talks us the decade of women. So this moving me back to gender again, but... Do we feel that... In a favourable way, we should say. Yeah, way. Oh, exactly. Yeah, this, well. this was, <laughs> we, yeah. we should probably make that clear. He's wasn't not a, going, oh, He's not God. lamenting. No, yeah. He does start with a rather doleful list of all the people, as it were, that we've lost yeah. in, in this decade. But yeah, but he says what we've, what what we've got, what we've gained, is um, a decade of women poets. And do, do we feel that in... I mean, not just in poetry which we may or may not be qualified to discuss individually here. But do we feel that, I mean, this is an era of optimism? Things are getting better in, in this area. There's much better visibility, I think. I was going to say, you, can you say hear, equality, but it's yeah. visibility rather than equality. Yeah, and I, I think uh, economically and politically and socially, I'm not sure. But uh, critically it, it is, isn't it? Because even the yeah. most kind of, the areas of the critical world that you might think are the most kind of old fashioned it's kind of an accepted you know nobody writes about how oh two of the actors were from one ethnic ethnicity and one was for another and it was very nobody writes like that anymore because it would seem absurd um, yeah the yeah. argument has mm. been one so the, that argument has I just, seems I, to me my only caveat would no no and it's brilliant of course that people hitherto not had a chance are being listened to and read and all of those things that is it's um yeah it's brilliant and it's long overdue the only danger i think is that it's like okay we've done women yeah. or you know we've done african-americans done or we've done asians you know it's just like you know that's, that's the it's Zoe williams's piece yes exactly yeah, exactly. yeah. We, so thought, we, thought these we thought these were arguments this, that had long been yeah you don't want to be part of the... Uh, of, uh, it doesn't want to be a trend. But then then you go back to business as usual. Well, the three of us, Roz, Lucy and I, went to see Little Women oh, yeah. last we did. week. Written and directed by Greta Gerwig, also by Louisa May Alcott. You want some more champagne? Well, David's <laughs> 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 gesturing well, yeah, heavily exactly, for yeah. more champagne. Um, and that was written, directed by a woman, predominantly female cast, predominantly female crew. And that feels like an example of a film that would have been made in the past. I mean, it's been adapted seven other times onto movies, but it feels that it's being adapted that way by this rock star of a writer-director. That feels like a, a film of its time more than it otherwise would. Do you not think? Perhaps, but also I felt when watching that film that they kept sort of having to make points and having to make statements about what women can do and what they can't do and all this stuff. And, you know, at one point, u- using the lines and saying you might be obsessed with this man for two years, but we will be interesting forever. Like, don't give yourself away to him, all this stuff. And it's like, do we still need to say this? Do we, is it, it's amazing Mm. to me that you still need in this blockbuster film to have a famous actress talking directly to camera and reiterating these points over and over again. It's meant to feel radical. But that's in the book. And the book is not not a radical book. No. Oh, I I don't know. The things she says are pretty radical for the time. Well, the outcome is not radical. No, the, this is an outcome, yeah. the second book is called Good Wives and, yeah. and everyone gets married. They're, um, just, they're just very good wives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is what, um, it's not just a clever title, Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> this is what Zoe says in her book, in her piece, sorry. I might quote a little bit, but she says, you know, that we still struggle to address misogyny head on because it sounds so blankly improbable that a prejudice so painstakingly overcome by discussion, legislation, individual acts of courage, collective acts of solidarity, deliberated activism and more amorphous tectonic shifts of culture should reappear, an ancient foe hideously reanimated by the methods, networks and barbarisms of modernity. How the fuck did that happen? In our picture we've got this illustration of I can't believe we still have to protest this shit and that's one of Zoe's points. It's like, and and that's what what I felt when I watched Little Women. Why? Why is this radical still to have someone? But I don't think it was. Ra- but I don't think to me that wasn't radical. It's an updating of the book. If you didn't have that, if you just had the book that quietly ends with everyone getting married, and doesn't engage that, I think that would be worse in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. But I was saying about I thought when watching that film, 
that they could have done that without over-egging those yeah, points. Well, that's a, yeah. And interestingly enough, uh, the Golden Globe nominations for Best Director were announced and all of the nominees were men. Yeah. Uh, and Greta Gerwig was not nominated for this. Now, whether you think she should be or not is a different point, but it's striking that mm. uh, even though there have been some very prominent female-helmed films this year, and even though Greta Gerwig is a kind of rock star, she's not been she's not been nominated. Mm. The thing that struck me as well in, in Zoe Williams's piece is that there's a fairly basic statistic which I think is difficult to argue that things have moved on very much about domestic violence and women getting killed by their partners. Mm-hmm. Hasn't and really changed. Yeah. Hasn't changed. Yeah. And the same with rape conviction, incredibly low and hasn't shifted in the past decade. Yeah. It's got down even. It's gone down. Yeah. Yeah. And respect. there's more, and this is in the face of more and more academic research that shows the link between uh, domestic violence and extremism, you know, of any sort really. Joan Smith did loads of, has done loads of work on that and, and yet we're still in the same place. Nothing has changed in 10 years. Every time there is a terrorist attack of any politics, there are two things you can always conclude with your eyes closed. It will be by a man and that man will have had some will sort of domestic, vi- domestic yeah. violence uh, conviction. So that is almost a great universal uh, in these things. Maybe when we celebrate the visible... The danger is that we say, oh, great, Greta Gerwig's making movies. And, you know, I think there's now a majority of the new TV shows in America in 2019... Uh, there were more female leads than there were male leads and the men in TV shows developed in America were more likely to be sidekicks and sort of boffins rather than the central players. There that, is a, that may be affected by the removal of uh, male leads from certain <laughs> famous yeah, for, uh, and replacement by female for legal, leads. For legal, for legal reasons. For legal reasons. <laughs> uh, but that sort of visible change may mask a lack of change in other areas. Exactly comes back to what Mary Beard was saying, what we were talking about at the very beginning, how things look different on the inside to they do on the outside, and the focus can be a problem. Yeah. Let's talk about technology. Roz, mm-hmm. you've talked about the decade of podcasts. You're always banging on about podcasts. I'm always banging on about podcasts. Uh, what is your thesis about podcasts? Mm, I don't have a thesis so much. I sort of... Well, I started with the noise-cancelling like headphone technology... How many hours have you listened to noise cancelling? What does it say? According to my Spotify account, this year I listened to 40,757 minutes of music. Mm. Which Adrian worked out how many minutes that was a day. How many? I can't remember. A lot. Is it a lot? It's roughly two. Yeah. No, that's just music. That's just Spotify. Really? And is that a good good thing or a bad thing? What what are you saying? Do you think we accompany... I always say to my wife, she can't... I'm the same in different respects, but Mm. she can't sit in a room without putting a podcast on now. So it's, mm. it's this notion that there has to be something always accompanying us. Is that the, how you treat them? Do you think they're all, they've, they've become intrusive? Not intrusive, but they're part of our existence. A little bit, yeah. I mean, I sort of define two different sorts. So there's the sort that allows you to sort of embrace a kind of niche interest and block out opinions and views that you you don't really want to hear or don't want to encounter or the people presenting it will do that for you. So there are 700,000 podcasts and many of those are very like, you know, if you're pro-Brexit, there's something for you. If that, You know, you just find what you want. It's like an echo chamber. Yeah, if you like freedom books, flowers and moons. For example, there's a place for you. <laughs> yeah, if amazing. you don't like those things, though, yeah. then you wouldn't come they're, here. They're not listening. They're not listening. They're not, they're yeah, they're not listening. They're not listening. Um, Ross could insult them now and they'd never know. Yeah, they wouldn't. They? Uh, but then I argue that the the best podcasts that have happened, you know, have come about over the last decade, and the one I use as an example is S-Town, are the ones that look at that gap between what we hear and what's actually happening what we choose to hear and what's actually happening and they take that gap and they sort of mine it and mine it and mine it in ways that more traditional forms of journalism can't really do because more traditional forms of journalism are always limited by space or time and often have to be even the best sort have to be sort of come to some sort of binary conclusion or have to draw conclusions and the wonderful things about these podcasts they can go on for as long as they want them to for hours and hours and hours can take you on this journey is that you can actually get to quite complicated places where no one's right and no one's wrong and you're not quite sure what's happening it's all very human and real but they've created like in publishing is once there's a good one Mm. there are then a thousand crap ones and then there's a thousand crap ones and so the lesson of S-Town it's probably been find a real life crime mm-hmm. and solve it. Yeah, or try to solve and it. Try to solve it. Fail, Even yeah. though in S-Town they don't solve it and like you say, it's all about the human experience. Mm. In some ways the lessons have been we better expose something, we better... Because that's done well a couple of times and then the market's filled with, with imitations. Yeah, and more so actually with Serial, which was which which also came from the same people who, who made S-Town. Serial really was unpicking an unsolved crime, whereas 
S-Town began with someone phoning up a reporter and saying, or emailing a reporter and saying, there's been a murder in this awful shit place I live and no one's looking into it. It's all been covered up. And the reporter goes and finds there wasn't a murder, but then finds that the man who contacted him is fascinating and peculiar. There's a big mystery behind yeah. him. Yeah, it sounds like a, a sort of character from a Donna Tart novel. He's a southern clockmaker, isn't he? Was he, he a clockmender? I mean, uh, it's like, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's all these incredible expertise. Has made a maze in his back garden. Yeah. It sounds very meta. It sounds like a literary creation. I mean, if I it? tell you, it goes from like a tattoo parlor to this thing about nipple rings to the woods. Like it just it just goes everywhere. It's amazing. I've talked about S-Town an awful lot though. But yeah, there have been lots of very derivative unsolved crime podcasts that have copied the format that are actually nearly always revolve around a dead female body and she was really hot and all of these people might have killed her or be in relationships with her. And it's really salacious. And that's true of genre thriller fiction, actually. One Mm. of the issues it's Mm. got is that it's often a Mm. dead female body and even if it's a female detective now, which is probably more likely, it's still more likely to be a female victim than, than, than anything else. Should we talk about telly? Andrew Irwin, who writes a regular TV column with you, Roz, which mm-hmm. we don't call Andrew Loves Telly, but... We'd like to. We'd like to call it that, yeah. yeah. Maybe we should. Maybe we should, yeah. <laughs> Roz likes audio. Roz, uh, Andy likes telly. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he says the big thing that's happened is that a TV is no longer that piece of furniture sitting in a room determinately and determinedly clever broadcasting it's become a kind of abstract entity that exists equally on whichever screen is closest to hand do we think we've all changed how we watch telly before you answer andrew says that the top show of 2009 was britain's got talent and the top show of 2019 was i'm a celebrity get me out of here did anyone here watch any of that no no no, no you see I mean, we're like it's a real generational thing isn't it, is it? yeah my mother came around to babysit over the weekend and she and my 10 year old son watched the strictly Final. Live. Live. Yeah. I suppose there are millions of people doing that still. So I think we could kind of be a bit snooty about what people's tastes are. And in fact, we had a a column this year in which Ian Sansom, who stood in for Andrew a couple of times, mm. grandly told us off for liking Fleabag, he metropolitan comedy, yes. and said that what everyone really was watching was Race Across the World. And the Peaky Blinders, I think. Yeah. And possibly Peaky Blinders. And he brilliantly said that Fleabag was, I think he said Miranda was swearing, which is yes. a brilliant thing to say. I, I it is possible to watch both. I, thought, yes. Flea, I yeah. thought Fleabag was overrated a little bit. Well, so did he. Yeah. And I think he thought that there was a lot of attention why on did, Fleabag why, and why? not on... Sorry. Because I, I think the problem is I came to it with too much hype, so I thought it was going to have to be Shakespearean in its conception, and it wasn't. And I just thought it was a little bit... It was beautifully written and beautifully acted, so I'm not saying it's bad. It didn't move me at all, and I, I thought it was too consciously pleased with its own brilliance, and that put me off. It felt slight when when I think it was trying to be hefty. I mean, who am I to judge? But I, it didn't make move me in the way that I thought lots of people said it was going to. So when I came to it, I was going, like, oh, fine. But, it got lots of hype. It was, but I think it's perfectly possible to like both. You can both like the brilliance yeah. of Fleabag but, but and at least also with those across the world. two examples. You know, if you've paid a TV license or possibly even not, you can see them. Mm. There is a problem with so much TV being on subscription channels of this variety or that variety that a lot of people haven't seen the big thing that everyone's talking about because they haven't got the right subscription. Well, this is definitely connectedly the decade that any kind of synchronised viewing ended. Well, well, it's it's not, it's it's I'm a celebrity getting out of here. Apart from those things, no, sort of, yeah. the, the, there is so much out there that everyone could very easily be watching completely like, different things at completely different times. Well, exactly, that's what I mean. And everyone knew everyone knew they would be sitting sitting down to watch that and then the next day you would talk about it. Altogether, and that's a big problem. We're sitting this talking about this post-election. That's this is the big problem for the BBC, because the BBC now is facing a Tory party with a huge majority that doesn't like the BBC for mm. a variety of reasons, and the means of funding the BBC, to your point, David, a license fee on t- television sets, feels absurdly anachronistic. Not least because there's loads of stuff you can watch with no license fee whatsoever, with no television whatsoever. If you invented the BBC today, you wouldn't invent the license fee. And what looked like an argument that was kind of gets elevated occasionally but was always going to go quiet, now would feel, if I were running the BBC, 
and I saw a Tory party with an 80 majority in the House of Commons, the fact that one in nine magistrates' cases in Britain are about criminalising people who haven't paid the licence fee. Which is such a waste of time, isn't it? So, and money, and yeah. this falls disproportionately on women. It feels that what we're talking about here is kind of interesting in sociological terms, but that's going to have a huge impact on whether the BBC in the end of... If we're having this conversation at the end of 2029... Is this the decade that the BBC stops being a, a universal yeah. service? The other thing you probably wouldn't do if you invented the BBC now is say it should be a broadcaster and a huge news website, yeah. huge news yeah. and lots of other things website. Why should it be both those things? I mean, that, that seems to stray into two very different And that's what, often worlds. where it gets into the worst trouble, when it tries to do clickbait stuff, or when I see things like, check out this long read on the BBC website. You know, well, why are you doing long reads? Like, you're, well, you're, because, you're funded broadcaster. Because you're not, they you're not can. A fund, well, yeah. they can, exactly. Yeah. But that question is going to wobble, I think, over and the And often the decade. quality of the stuff is not in doubt. It's just whether it's a competitive advantage that maybe it shouldn't have in those yeah. kind of terms. Um, also, a lot of it is available on Netflix now. I'm thinking of new the, thing, the Brit not, box yeah, thing with launched. the ITV. Yeah. Well, is Faulty Towers going to be taken plan? off Netflix? Well, they're all going to have that. <laughs> we di- must know. Because Dis- Disney, Disney are doing the same thing. So mm. you could live in a world where you have to spend 40 quid a month on four different yeah. uh, streaming services. And you still di- won't see Song of the South. Because the, the racist Disney film that uh, um, Oh What a Beautiful Morning comes from. Mm-hmm. Or Zippity no, Doodah. Oh, uh, Zippity Doodah. That is Oklahoma. Yeah. Zippity Doodah. I do apologise. Oh, yeah. David's knowledge of racist Disney films is not what it might be. No, I'm Good. Good. totally uh, sorry. <laughs> David, finally for this section, history. Stop yes. drinking champagne. Well, hang on. Well, hang on a second. I mean, pour your champagne. Uh, pour uh, your champagne. I've got a terrible cough. Yeah, pour your champagne. I'll pass the champagne no over there. Lucy, do you want something? There we go. Okay, while you're answering this question, um, everyone else can have some champagne. Sorry. History's in the past, David. Yes, it is. So it should be immutable. Well, I'd just like to say history is not in the past. The past is in the past. Oh, my God. History means the inquiry, doesn't it? Which is current. Into the past. Yeah. So uh, what, what trends have you observed in your historical hot seat? As a fine practitioner of history yourself... Kind, what, what, too kind. What books have you published this? Uh, well, let's case? not talk about the books I've published. <laughs> let's talk about the books that other people have published. Okay. But if we were um, to talk about yours, which one would we say? We could talk about any number. I'm going to determinately okay. and determinately uh, <laughs> avoid that. One thing I say is that, unfortunately, uh, what we mainly have with us is uh, the dictates of publishing, which means anniversaries are a big deal in. Yeah. History, historiography still in any terms of kind of popular history writing or stuff that crosses over between academics and popular history writing. So the big series of anniversaries that we've had are all around the First World War. So there's been a heck of a lot of First World War publication, although, of course, because publishing being what it is everyone wants to get in first, quite a lot of big First World War books were published in the previous decade, ostensibly because of an anniversary, but which hadn't happened yet. And do we reach tipping point? I mean, you read a lot of these books when they come in, presumably you flick them. Do you feel that, do you ever learn more? I mean, yeah, yeah. You, you, I think it's perfectly possible to learn more about it. And there's, there's been a long wave of uh, revisionist, particularly kind of military history about the First World War, which basically comes down to the idea that there's more to it than the sort of futility first day of the Somme kind of thing. And also more to it than just, you know, nice white boys from Britain going to fight. That's also true. So it's been the the world aspect of it, the kind of globalising aspect. One thing that doesn't seem to me still to come through that much, even when we're talking about the war in its global context, is if you read about this stuff in English, you'll read about Brits and Americans and maybe imperial... Uh, fighters from, say, India. But you don't actually read that much about Germans and even less about Turkish fighters, for example, Turkish soldiers. So our globalisation really points in one direction only? It, it does. It seems to me a bit. I think you don't have to look too hard to get past that. One of the biggest books published on the First World War in this decade is a translation of a German book on it by uh, Jörn Leonhardt called Pandora's Box, I mean, which does take a German perspective on it, but it still, to some extent, kind of goes along national lines. But I think it is kind of becoming 
important that we've got that distance from something. It's it's the point at which something really becomes history. There's no one left there to remember it. And you can talk about... So historians can write about the way actually, the, for example, the Allied military effort was a learning curve. They actually did get better at fighting, and despite all the losses and the horror and the blood, they got better at fighting, and that is how they won the war. It wasn't just kind Attrition. of because four years were up yeah. sort of thing or, or Hindenburg thought it was a stab in the back it was because they got better yeah. um, and that revisionism of the generals, the generals being all monsters has started to happen now more hasn't it yeah absolutely and also again that, that kind of British perspective you know it, it's always got to be remembered that the Western Front was more a French experience even than it was a British experience yeah. we're going to finish things off by picking our our Ros, I hope you've done this cultural high points of the decade. I did it because someone came to my desk and was like, please read to the end of the script. Read to the end of the email. Because <laughs> I know what you're like. Fine. Get thinking or get remembering, Ros, if you have indeed thought mm-hmm. of it before. And we'll come back to our own cultural high points of the decade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Competition time. Our friends at Barbican London have offered 20 of our TLS podcast listeners the chance to win a Barbican membership plus for a whole year. The Barbican is, as I'm sure you know, a major arts organisation with two galleries, two theatres and a huge concert hall and three cinemas. The Membership Plus package will get you free gallery entry, priority booking, discounts plus entry into the Barbican Lounge as they look forward to 2020. A year in which they have the UK premiere of Damon Albarn's new composition, The Nearer the Fountain, The More Pure the Stream Flows. Uh, and there's also lots of other stuff. Uh, jazz pianist Chick Corea performing with Christian McBride on bass and drummer Brian Blade and the screenings of Isabel Huppert in The Glass Menagerie and Ivo Van Hove directed Death in Venice. He's also got West Side Story this year, I think, hasn't he, Lucy? He has in New York. In New yeah. York. Yeah, and um, we're going to cover it. We are going to cover it. To enter this competition for the Barbican, you need to email barbican.membership at barbican.org.uk. That's barbican.membership at barbican.org.uk. Quote the words TLS competition in the subject line. The competition ends with this decade on the 31st of December. Right, everybody including Roz. Let's try and name some cultural favourites of the decade. Points will be deducted for anyone who mentions the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games in 2012. (laughs) We were all going to say that. No, it's it's just often people, as they look back on this decade, they say, oh, remember the high point when Britain came together and the opening of the Olympic Games and everything has been this sort of descent since then as if that was a kind of high point of cultural cohesion. It wasn't even the high point of the Olympics. <laughs> it was good fun though, the Olympics. Yeah. The Olympics, Super yeah, Saturday was the high point of the did Olympics. Did you watch the opening ceremony? Mm, yeah. I was on a rooftop next to the stadium 
Oh, next to the yeah. Wow. What could you see? Everything. It was amazing because we could see it on the screen and we could see it happening just there. And oh. You could hear the crowds. And then when Dizzy Rascal came on, the bonkers with bonkers, oh. and you suddenly realised that every, it was quite industrial on there. Every single rooftop was covered in people watching it, and everyone started screaming on screen in real life. It was incredible. Hang on a second. Are we making the argument here, Ross? This was the no, culture. No, no, it wasn't. It yeah. wasn't. I was just telling my anecdote. Yeah, I didn't watch I it. I, I, didn't, I didn't watch it. Oh, it was brilliant. So I, I was in like... Scarborough. Oh my God. What were you doing Tim there? Tim Berners-Lee came out with box. Do you remember that? So many things. It's worth it just for that. So many things. You really happened. are an iconic northerner, aren't you? In I, can't, I couldn't possibly say. No. I just happened to be in Scarborough. I don't like moments of communal feeling, so I, 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 find okay. that, I find that difficult. So I just think... I think we can all vouch for that. Yeah. <laughs> in our own way, we can all vouch for that. Who wants to go first? Let's say Look ask Ros. No, <laughs> should we ask Ros? Because I feel that that will prevent Ros from writing covertly to come up with her own answer copying other people's <laughs> yeah, own work. yeah exactly I'm going to say Hamilton oh Lucy wanted to do that well, I mean Ross. I feel like I don't like no, to say it no, no go on what, else, ha- what else can what, I say why Hamilton? about it why Hamilton why it was amazing who's seen Hamilton then I've seen it but before I'd seen it I'd listened to the soundtrack. I've listened to the soundtrack of millions of times. So I feel like I know, and I've also read Ron Chernow's book Hamilton, right. which, if you read it, it is an act of absolute wonder that that book, which is a very, very serious, long, impeccably researched historical biography, yeah. how that produce is Hamilton is one of the great alchemizing feats of creation. I yeah, think he's just not necessarily someone you would. Th- think of I mean because I, I wrote about Ron Chernow's more recent book about Grant saying what a uh, great biography it was recently he's kind of more obviously a subject for a kind of heroic biography whereas the guy who introduced a credit system or I can't remember but he did something kind of serious and financial and they, sing, a, they sing about it I and mean they that's, do sing that's about the great it. thing is they sing about the issue of federalization and hmm. tax structures every yeah. single thing um, and is it it's Lin-Manuel Miranda yeah there's a now kind of iconic photo of him. He was on his honeymoon, picked up that book from the airport. And there's a picture his new wife took of him lying in the pool reading the book. And he read it, and I've heard him speak about it, and he read it and said that he saw the same story that you hear from of hip-hop artists in the book. He saw this the same sort of struggle and... Amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. What's your favourite song? Oh, um, Wait For It. Oh, I like... Controversy. Yeah. I like uh, one shot, My Shot. Oh, yeah. yeah. I love that. Yeah. Uh, Sarah Churchwell, the academic, I was at a dinner with her and she's seen it seven times or something like that. Really? Wow. And I said to her, the problem with Hamilton, it seemed to me, listening to the soundtrack, is it ends on a kind of diminuendo. It's sort of, it's got monster songs in the first half and the, and the last couple of songs on the soundtrack, at least, are a bit like, and she said that's the, that's the sort of thematic point of it. It's about sort of... But also the state, when you see it, so I, I like you, I knew it really well before I went to see it. And the first half is all about the songs. And the second half is so much more about the staging and the movement and the... So you're not disappointed when you get to the end of it? No. no. And everyone's bloody weeping as well. Oh, you wouldn't like that. No. <laughs> I think it really was a game changer, though, because it was such a weird idea. The first time anybody heard of it, everyone just went, well, that sounds mad. Um, yeah. A rap, a hip-hop musical about the founding fathers. And then... It was just so inventive in every possible way and so kind of full of delight and also brought a lot of people who wouldn't necessarily be there. They cast a lot of black and Asian and... And in the London show, I'm pretty sure most of the actors are young Londoners. Yeah, Yeah. I think they are most of them. And it's a celebration of immigration. Immigrants, they get the job done. That's That's the sort of the conceit of the whole thing, isn't it? It's just that kind of mixture of those two things. Which just and you would think, well, that can't possibly work. And it works incredibly well. And they did it so well that it opened up. So I haven't seen it either. I've just heard it. Mm. All of my kids' friends, they all know it. They Mm. all know it off by heart. They can tell you things about the founding fathers. Yeah, but they've they've not seen it. No, no, because most people can't afford to see it. There is an accessible way. (laughs) (laughs) She's hogging all the seats. Yeah, there is an accessible way to go and see it, which is there's a Hamilton app, and every single day there's Mm. a lottery. Yeah, that's how we got our tickets. Yeah, and there are ten pound tickets. And in America, they do ten dollars because Hamilton is the ten dollar bill. And it's just such a kind of generous and inventive and sort of, you know, explosive in a good way. All right. I think mm. it had big ramifications. Do you want my other ones quickly? Go on then. I'll be really quick. Um, transparent on. or Transparent, which was an Amazon TV yes. show, which is 
incredible and inventive and strange and shouldn't work but does the final season is a musical the whole thing is a musical and it's just it's bizarre and I can't recommend it but enough. it works as a musical Absolutely. did you know which series was the first to do that potentially Buffy the Vampire, Buffy the Vampire Slayer yeah. did a song great series that was uh, Oof, wonderful I was going to say Ferrante, but I'm pretty sure someone else is going to... If only there was an Italian if figure. If only there was someone else <laughs> who could... Also, pronounce it properly, Ros. I did Ferrante. She did, she did yeah, not, But job. not with an exu... Not with a sort of insouciance. I thought it was Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, sorry, Ros. Uh, <laughs> Thea, who would you like to nominate as your uh, cultural highlight? Well, I am going to go with Elena Ferrante, but I'm only going to do it... I'm going to do it because I can spin it multiple ways. Okay. Well, it's interesting because she... We started the decade with her L'Amica Geniale, which was 2011. That was the first novel of the Neapolitan Quartet, and that was translated into English in 2012, so pretty early in the decade. And then we now end the decade with another new novel by her. It's not in the quartet, but it is a novel by her. And it's interesting because, um, well, translated fiction, has. this is the decade when, when it's grown more than any other decade since records began, we're now at 5.5% of sales in this country are translated fiction, and most of that is literary fiction, whatever that means. They still don't get paid well enough for it, do they? And what that means is is we've got these translation sensations, which I hate myself for oh, nice. saying, but that's yeah. what it is. So we've got Carlo Vignauskard, who we'd never heard of before. We've got Ferrante, we've got Leila Slimani, Edouard Louis, Olga Tokarczuk, all of these people who no one had necessarily ever heard of in, in, in the English language. Now we have them. Svetlana. Svetlana, exactly, oh, really? Alexievich. So it's also mean that also means it's been a decade for translators. For noticing translators, noticing the work of translators, how important translators are. So hopefully, here's hoping anyway, the next decade <laughs> will be the decade when they get paid fairly. Show them the money. <laughs> Show them the money for the incredible work that so they So are do. you saying there that contrary to what some people might say, it's been a decade of cosmopolitanism? Perhaps. Perhaps in some way. the decade of Brexit and yet the decade of, of that. Yeah, which is interesting. And maybe the two aren't entirely unconnected. Lucy Dallas, uh, Ros has stolen yours. Ros has stolen Hamilton. Um, she tried to steal mine too. <laughs> she did. See, she does That's it. Even though I went first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to steal Lucy's Hamilton when we were talking about this, this, this lunchtime. But Ros has already, yeah, yeah. It's already done. <laughs> a thing that, that I think, that this is quite a London thing, so I apologise for that, but the new theatre, The Bridge, Ah, I think is a, a new and wonderful thing. Puts on a lot of really good shows. One of which, the Midsummer Night's Dream, which you also saw, is one of the best things I've seen for a long time. Loved it. In, in in terms of completely giving yourself up to something, and it was very inventive. And the staging and is brilliant. And uh, although I didn't, if you watch it as a member of the, a groundling, it does end with a disco. Well, I can talk about it now because it's, it's over, isn't it? Yes, yeah. it's finished yeah. now. So it does end with the stage disappearing and these giant disco balls falling down. And it's the, the cast moon. Yeah. dance. So, uh, with everyone With else. everyone. So the whole. So you, there's like 200 people watching it. There's some people seated and if you're standing. And then it ends with effectively a disco. So Titania. Sort of celebration. Uh, isn't it? And yeah. bottom and everyone stay on stage. I obviously backed awkwardly to the corner and like, just... It sounds a lot like Punch Drunk. <laughs> kind of theatre which was immersive, immersive theatre which happened a lot in it's a it's Australia. a it's a bit like that they were very they were very clever about it because it wasn't quite immersive i wouldn't go to immersive theater. no you were you were the audience so and that, that's what the, i think but, the virtue of it it keeps you it, yeah. it means you're not being sort of mortified by yourself yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and i, mean, I, I could back same, into the corner with yeah. um Julius Caesar. Yes, great. They did. Yeah. Another great production. Very, and very, very, I mean, that, there were so many aspects of it that were brilliant, and that was one of the brilliant things—the sort of management of the crowd without. Yeah, without I think I probably reviewed twelve or... productions of Shakespeare for you, Lucy, mm. this year, and I would say the top three would have both from the bridge. Two of them would be from the bridge, yeah. and the third, I think, would be Twelfth Night, the Malvolia. Tams and Greg one. Tams and Greg one yeah. playing Malvolia, which yeah. is just this brilliant. Great. Did you see that? Yes. And it was lovely, wasn't it? And she was magnificent, and it was funny, and it was the staging was brilliant, big stage. It was really confident and just completely recast the, the play as well. Yeah, I loved it. Um, so I think that's a, a big thing. There, there was a, uh, I saw it, there was a magic flute directed by Simon McBurney of Complicity. Who I love anyway. Oh, well done. And that was raise the tone. That was just well that was very very good. And I was just thinking of one actually. Now, um, when I went, this is the thing I went to see for work: Spell Songs, which is about Robert McFarlane's and Jackie Morris's yeah. Lost Words. Just really, really, really beautiful music. So I would recommend it. It oh, bears re-listening, beautiful. and um, it's it's a good cause, i.e., saving the whole entire well, world. Yeah, I'm not sure we're doing that brilliantly, but um, David Horsepool. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, I've got got some. Got one. How two, many? Uh, Twenty-five. Uh, <laughs> so let's let's get on with it. Uh, first up, when anyone likes some more champagne while David, <laughs> you better, David, you better David, David is doing, have some Strap more champagne. In. Yeah, go on. Um, well, I saw it. I know. Is it, it was Richard written, III, the book no, by David Horsepool? It is not. Is it Cromwell? I did see by a good David. Richard III with Martin Freeman. You've just reminded oh, yeah. me at Trafalgar Studios. In fact, I saw a very British Richard rebel. III's. Is that one of your books called? English rebel. English, English rebel. Yeah, sorry. But uh, the, my play of the Dear decade, me. which I know was it. written in 2009, but I saw it in 2011, <laughs> is Jerusalem. Ah, oh, Jess Butterworth. Butterworth. Well done. Yes. Um, well which done. I saw the last night of its run in London. And it was completely mesmerising. In fact, I said to my wife this morning, oh, I've got to think of you know, a cultural high point of the past decade. What do you reckon? And she said, without missing a beat, well, Jerusalem. And I said, oh, yeah, that was what I was thinking of. So it really kind of stuck with both of us. Not technically this decade, though, David. Well, it is, because 2011, <laughs> I believe, is in this decade. Yeah, can when I, I, saw can it. I jump in to say that Ferryman... Also, just uh, saw that were. too. That was Jolly incredible, good. and I saw that in the first week. Well, it was previews. Definitely and, in this decade, that one. And that was definitely, yes. and it's probably about what four years ago, three years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Incredible. Not as good though. I didn't. Think. I thought it was brilliant, and when I saw it in previews, there was a, a scene where they were sitting at the table, um, two of them talking, and you know the things are getting more kind of unsettled, and there's something sinister, and the lamp caught fire. Oh and they in dealt with life. it, yeah, in real life. And they dealt with it brilliantly, and it just became this symbol. They just worked it into the text. Oh. That did not happen in the performance. No. I saw so. so that was definitely that's live theatre, isn't it? That is live and there was a live goose on stage. Oh. Yes, was that on and a real baby. They oh. they were both supposed to exit pursued by a goose. Can I have another highlight, <laughs> which is Untitled Goose Game? Sorry, I don't know what, what is Untitled Goose Game. It's a video game. It's brilliant. It is brilliant. Sorry, David. Continue. Number twenty-three. Well, there was the duck in the attic as well, but no, I won't. Ibsen. Ibsen's Wild Duck at the Almeida was quite. Come on, you've got two more. Maybe. All right. Well, here's Speaking one from left field. Go on. My artist of the decade, Kamazi Washington, the oh. fantastic uh, West Coast saxophonist who I've seen now, I think, four times, mm. sometimes jamming with other people. And I saw him at festivals, but then I got a chance to see him at uh, Late Night Prom, where he, if you don't know Kamazi Washington, he's a saxophonist who plays with a huge band, which he then uh, augmented with an orchestra for a triple album called The Epic and he played much of it at a prom at the Royal Albert Hall with BBC Orchestra and it was just mind-blowing um, and I was looking back on my emails with my friend who I went to see it with who's a proper jazzer because I am not we were just kind of exchanging how blown our minds were um, and I couldn't talk in any technical way about it but he just one of the most Amazing. memorable things I've seen Go on, last one Rather smaller scale. Detectorists, the brilliant TV Lovely. series. Oh, I've not seen that. It's kind it of the complete brilliant. opposite. Yes. It's like a wonderful yes. miniature. You can't imagine Kamasi Washington yes. backing very quiet. the uh, uh, Detectorists. But um, obviously, having historical interests, and there's lots of stuff about digging up Anglo Saxon treasures, so that kind of completely fascinated me anyway. But the characters are just wonderful. Uh, Mackenzie Crook and Toby Jones are brilliant. And I remember Lovely. Adam Mars Jones. Mm. Tripping over himself to praise it. <laughs> yeah, he, he did. did. Yeah, he, did. he doesn't often yeah. do that. He do, he gave it a lot of popcorns. Yeah, yeah, five popcorns. <laughs> Next year, by the way, for all Adam Mars Jones's reviews, we're going to make him rate out of five popcorns, aren't we? He's he's just learning about this uh, now. Yeah, on this podcast, he's not listening. <laughs> no, he's not. I hope he's not listening because it will be a shock to him. I, I'm going to end then, probably tying together what we've talked about at the beginning, because I think the cultural moment of the decade in film was the success of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which actually did bring issues of identity and inclusivity and ex free expression into the mainstream. Action films in the 80s and 90s were much more based on individuals, much more based on violence, and there's a certain sort of right-wing aesthetic to them. And the biggest films now, and this is true slightly of Star Wars as well, but the biggest films that are selling out cinemas are Marvel films, and they are based deliberately, consciously, on the idea of people being the same beneath their skin. Mm. That seems to be the central aesthetic of them. And that I find fascinating that that mentality is now so mainstream that the biggest films are embodying it. That must have an impact on things, mustn't it? If that's the, if that's the politics in the true sense of the word of it, that must have an impact. 
Let's meet back here in 10 years' time. We'll be back here in 10 years' time. The smell of champagne will please have drifted. Let's drifted, not. drifted, drifted, drifted. Please let's not, Thea. All right, for God's sake, just pretend. Please let's not. Please help me, says Thea. David will probably have produced I've two or three more historical books. I'll, I'll be here even yeah. if Thea is running the I'll world. I'll be drinking the yeah. champagne. You'll be drinking the champagne. We'll be talking about a couple more new books by David Horsepool, <laughs> like Richard III, A Ruler and His Reputation, which came out in 2015. Splendid. Great book. That's all we have time for this week, this month, this year, and this decade. Our thanks go to David Horsepool, Ros Deneen, and Lucy Dallas. We have loved bringing you this podcast over the last 12 months. Thank you so much for supporting and listening. Make sure you're subscribing to the TLS. We'll be back next year for more of the same from Thea and from me. Have a wonderful Christmas and a peaceful New Year. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.